0: The fourth conference of the retreat explores the actions of women in the history of Israel from the time of the judges, the transition to the twin institutions of monarchy and prophecy, as well as how heroism displayed by women during times of foreign conquest, exile, and persecution allowed God's people to cling to freedom. So good morning everyone you had a a nice night it was a beautiful evening that was that was a great gift very very nice um so the the topic of this morning's uh talk i called it the women of history but the history of the uh in the scriptures the historical books uh, which start with joshua and judges and take us through uh samuel and kings and and then a few others along the way, but this history of, of the people of God uh, having been redeemed from slavery in Egypt, formed as a people in the desert, and then settled settled <laughs> in the land that God has given them. Uh, and their point is the whole point of this whole process from, uh, from God's point of view was to somehow teach the human race what we could be like if indeed we were willing to uh, live lives of true genuine freedom in order in in order and respect and in the common good Uh, a community of people in which there's a lot of equality not necessarily a lot of dominance and authority but it requires and and certainly not the slavery that they were experiencing in Egypt but it requires a freedom that comes from the willingness of everyone to participate and everyone to trust and everyone to uh, not pursue their own interests. It didn't work. <laughs> and it still hasn't worked yet. We're still working on that. But that is the, the whole story of the covenant between God and God's people is um, you are free you are absolutely free and here's what it will take to really truly be free your choice is to choose life as the book of Deuteronomy tells us or not you choose life if you live in accordance with the wisdom of the of the law and the law being this is this is it this is the invitation there's no coercion here absolutely no coercion in the Covenant It is pure choice, and the God of the Covenant is not interested in coerced hearts. The God of the Covenant is only interested in free hearts. And therefore, that's where it seems to have fallen short. Nothing wrong with the the rules, necessarily, but they do require an embrace in freedom. And so, you know, after the book of Joshua, where we get great stories of the conquest of the land and celebrations of walls coming down and great things, which um, I understand from a, when I was in, in Israel and at Jericho. we um, were hearing the story of, of the, the walls coming, tumbling down, and the professor of archaeology who was teaching us that day, says, you know, you read the story, this is not a battle. This is a liturgy. This march around the walls of Jericho is led by priests, not soldiers, and trumpets. This was a a, a worship service to celebrate God's action and providence in the world, which I guess is great if you're outside the walls of Jericho, maybe not so good if you're inside the walls, but nonetheless, there's the stories that that go along the way. And we get to the book of Judges. People are settled, each tribe is in its own place, And given that they've all got their own land and their own place and their own concerns, uh, they really kind of separate from each other. There is not one nation. There are 12 tribes and within the 12 tribes, there are clans and families, and they're not connected. There is no unified worship. There is no King. There is no, no, uh, there is the priesthood, but there is no temple. There's nothing that unifies the people. And so they pursue their own ways. And in that, in that separation from one another, they're easily led astray. And the problem in the book of Judges continually is that they are influenced by their neighbors. Now, see, you've got people who have spent 400 years as slaves in Egypt and then 40 years wandering in the desert, getting fed by manna and water from rocks and had some herds and livestock along the way. But now they got to be farmers. That's different. <laughs> it's great to have your own land. Now you got to work it. <laughs> you got to be farmers. And you're dependent upon it. No longer would they just wake up in the morning and go out and gather um, bread. Tasteless though it may have been, and boring though it may have been, it was food. Now they're relying on the work of their hands, the soil, nature, things. And they look at their neighbors who have been doing this for a while and say, How do you do it? And the neighbors introduce them to the fertility gods, um, which has a certain appeal some <laughs> shape or form. And in the insecurity of farming, the insecurity of farming and the reliance on faithfulness to a law that doesn't necessarily produce rain or seeds growing, the temptation to find the security in people's ways of life who have been doing this for centuries is pretty compelling. And so in their own separate ways, without any unity without sort, they are easily swayed. The Book of Judges just has this up and down. It's a very sad book. I find it a very sad book because there are very few victories in it. Every once in a while, God raises up a leader who can unify them enough to protect them from the assaults of their enemies. But if I, and I've never counted the years as they're put, depicted on the book of Judges, but I think if you count the years, you get a few months where they are prosperous and at peace and safe and secure, and hundreds of years, In which they are under the subjection of their enemies or there is a famine and they're starving or their enemies are plundering they they get their enemies let them get to the point of the harvest and then come and steal the harvest it's a very sad book and they are in great disarray but every once in a while a judge is raised up god takes pity and mercy on them someone rallies them together they unify enough they renew the covenant relationship, they promise their faithfulness, and for a little while they are safe and prosperous from their enemies, but it never lasts long. Among the judges, and some of them were good, some of them were not so good. Samson, Samson's a problem. (laughs) Um, But among the judges was a woman, Deborah, or Deborah, She's first introduced as a prophet. Somehow or another, Deborah is recognized by the people of her area as one who speaks with the voice of God, who can bring them God's message. And she is given enormous respect. And then she is raised somehow to the position of being the judge. And the judge would do what judges do now, settle disputes, but they also were providing unifying leadership. So you got this combination in Deborah of a prophet who's tuned into the voice of God and ready to speak God's words without any other authority than her own voice and her own life on the line for it. And a judge with some authority but all of her authority is given to her by the people's allegiance. And the fact that she's a woman probably makes that even more precarious. But as a prophet, the word of God comes to Deborah, who says, call for Barak. Is Barak, was his name? Yeah, call for Barak. And at this time they were being harassed by a king of the Canaanites named Jabal and a general named Caesarea who had the weapons of mass destruction of the day ...iron chariots and they were just, you know, no, there was no match for the iron chariots. And so Deborah calls Barak and says, you know, God says, gather the, gather the soldiers and go march to Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor, it's it's fascinating because Mount Tabor is the mountain of the transfiguration in the Gospels. And it's sitting right there in the middle of the plain, big mountain, plains all around, very fertile fields. And if you control the mountain, you control the valley. controls the food supply for the nation and general caesar and his iron chariots had taken control of mount tabor and therefore had control of the livelihoods of the people living there um, who were the, the the people of israel barak says to deborah i'll go but only if you go with me and she says to barak you realize that if I go with you, all the credit for whatever happens goes to me, a woman. Are you ready for that?" And Barak, smart though he is, says, That's fine with me. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather have you get the credit than us get, lose the battle and give up our livelihoods. So one sensible male in the, in the midst of the whole mess um, says that happens and they marched to mount tabor and a couple of stories that i hear about this one is that uh, they just routed the armies there was there was no contest somehow the chariots were thrown into confusion the other story i heard was that what really caused the chariots is great you have an iron chariot which is great as long as it's not raining (laughs) and there's no mud and this heavy iron chariots this is what did in the army of cesara wasn't so much the strategic brilliance of Barack or even those charismatic leadership of Deborah it was a soggy rainstorm that clogged their wheels and made them unable to move or escape and so Deborah and Barack win the day and then there's another woman involved in the story who gives the general um invites the general in for hospitality and puts a peg through his head so uh, watch that there's there's in this little section there's there's a one of the things that strikes me is that there's there's a little gruesome violence, there's a lot of gruesome violence in it. And there's an enormous amount of sexuality in these stories of the women of, of history, um, which we're going to have to grapple with a little bit. And uh, whether it's the male church that has been very uncomfortable with that, which is very possible or what it is. But there's an invitation, I think, in these stories to um, explore, integrate, celebrate, and rejoice in the gift of feminine sexuality um, and and its power uh, uh, for good because it's always been associated in our in our tradition as dangerous Um, but in these stories it becomes a source of freedom and a gateway to freedom so we'll pay attention to that so that's kind of the um you know, one of the highlights of the book of Judges, this, this prophetess, Judge Deborah, who manages to defeat this, this general with his iron chariots um, without really lifting a finger, um, just putting a brainstorm in the right place and and then taking advantage of that. But they're, they're set free from that. Right after the book of Judges, there's the, the lovely little story it's one of the novellas of of the of the historical books of the book of ruth now i think you know i'm old enough to know some of you are my age and maybe a little older a little younger but if it hadn't been for gregory norman and the monks of western priory none of us would probably have ever heard of the book of ruth (laughs) it's kind of in their little inconsequential book um between judges and the books of samuel and kings So the time of the judges is coming to an end, miserable failure. Naomi is from the area around Bethlehem, a famine. And she goes to the neighboring country over to Moab. And there, her sons marry two Moabite women. Ruth is one and her sister is the other. Naomi is already a widow. The two husbands of these Moabite women die. And so you have three widows trying to eke out survival in the midst of a famine. In a, for Naomi in a foreign land, but now for Ruth and her sister, they, are, they have no status because they're now widows. So you have three widows, one a foreigner, trying to somehow eke out survival and it's just a mere survival in all this. there's a lot of um, things within the book of ruth that are, are curious and interesting but one of the things that comes to mind you see this this little uh triad of three widows joined together to survive is the the reality that pope francis highlighted in his um encyclical on family life, uh, that families come in all kinds of different configurations. And that if we start, if we fall prey to the temptation of limiting families to uh, married parents with children, we may miss an awful lot of the richness of the love and the devotion and the respect and the strength of human families that look very differently than that yes we have those configurations and yes there are the configurations of families now more and more where there is no marriage involved sometimes there is only one parent sometimes maybe two sometimes instability sometimes children who come from many parents all living together with with some parents Um, but then there are the other families that just kind of emerge naturally I have in mind like Two or three sets of sisters, blood sisters, who are each other's family. Whatever has happened in their lives, I'm not all that sure. Maybe they've had families of their own. Maybe they are now widowed. Maybe they were never married, never had children. But I see them, they come to church every week together. And I've been watching this for 15 years, in the time that I've been in Andover. And I've watched these sets of sisters come and watch one of them deteriorate in health while the other takes care of her. And you just see this this bouncing out and somehow or another, there's a family there that should be celebrated and recognized and respected and offered us life. I know too many well, not too many. I, I know a lot. <laughs> Never too many of them. Um, of ants, who somehow are the, even though they may not be living with their nieces and nephews, are that one source of stability for a niece and a nephew who's in a in a in a family configuration that is not very stable. And somehow or another, there is this one point of contact. That is constant and reliable and somehow that should be should be recognized and celebrated and rejoiced in, um, and, and noted and often, too often it's marginalized of course there are so you have the story of Ruth and her mother-in-law and there are plenty of stories of women taking care of their mothers-in-law um, taking care of their mothers, their mothers-in-law, their own elderly aunts, all sorts of configurations of, of caretaking that's going on um, among people. Grandmothers caring for grandchildren because parents are out of the picture. Uh, enormous, enormous variety of these configurations we call families. And if we're trying to put all families into one mold, we're going to fail miserably but if we're able to kind of consider and look and see what is the essence of family, we might discover things that like Ruth and Naomi discovered, that devotion and love and respect and loyalty and fidelity and commitment matter far more than blood relations. Cause that's the conflict in the book of Ruth to the sense that there's conflict in the book of Ruth, other than starving all the time. <laughs> there's conflict that Naomi decides that she needs, she's gonna be better off going home. And so she tells her daughters-in-law, I'm going back to Bethlehem, back to Israel. You need to stay here because I won't be able to find husbands for you back in Israel. You need to stay here to find husbands for yourselves among your own people. And the two women argue with her and she keeps being persistent and Ruth's sisters relents and stays in Moab. But Ruth says, is is insistent that she is going to stay connected to Naomi, whom obviously she has grown to love and respect a great deal. And that's where the song, wherever you go, I shall go comes from. She, She says those words to Naomi and they together go To make their way to find survival back home in Bethlehem, Um, she makes that commitment, and she's going to become uh, Naomi's caretaker. Not necessarily health wise, but Ruth is young enough to be able to go out and work. But it's not a job. It has you know the Book of Ruth has maybe the one example in the scriptures where they were, they were following the, the, the laws that God gave them. And one of those most important laws is when you do your harvest, don't do a good job. Don't be efficient as you harvest your fields. Don't try to get every last piece of grain in order to make your profit and to make your bread. The goal of a harvest is to make sure there's enough left over for those who have nothing and then allow allow the poor and the hungry to come in and glean after you've harvested, after you've taken more than enough that what you need for yourself and for your business, leave enough for others. And this is what Ruth is doing, although obviously there's gonna be plenty of trouble around that kind of a system, but nonetheless, she's doing this. And she impresses everyone with those qualities of devotion, humility, loyalty, faithfulness, generosity. And as a result of those qualities, uh, she finds her husband, Boaz. And Boaz and Ruth have children who become part of the line of David, part of and, and end up in, the, in the, um, the genealogy of the Messiah. But that's the thing, Ruth, Ruth made a choice that made absolutely no sense. There was nothing about the choice to go with Naomi home, to Naomi's home in Bethlehem, that made any sense for Ruth whatsoever. She had very little to gain by that choice. Naomi was trying to tell her that. Somehow or another, something, spurred Ruth to devote herself to her mother-in-law, which may be the most unnatural thing in the world, but nonetheless, this is what happens. And as a result of that irrational choice, spurred by no tradition, by no rules, by no societal expectations, in fact, contrary to all of them, Ruth ends up in the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah a foreigner and all the women in the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah are foreigners they they show up in there so that's you know the the book of Ruth love and devotion make families not blood and when we look for love and devotion we might see an awful lot more of it that isn't being noticed and isn't being recognized um, and could well be celebrated and rejoiced in because It's that kind of love and devotion that brings about salvation of of God's people. And, you know, despite that, that little interlude happens there, one little family. But for the most part, the rest of the nation's story is is still not happy. It's going downhill in a hurry. Um, And we hit the book, the opening of chapters of the book of Samuel, the first book of Samuel. We enter into a reality in which everything has failed. The political situation of whatever that nation had was just not working. There was no security. There was no unity. There was no government. There was no economic policy that made any sense. It was every person for themselves. And that never works. And it wasn't working then. The military had nothing. They were absolutely uh, at the mercy of their enemies because they couldn't unify enough to put up a fight and defend themselves. And religion had failed completely. The temples, the shrines of the official religion had been corrupted. The worship of the fertility gods was prospering and growing and the people maybe had some semblance of wanting to be faithful something some semblance of remembering and hearing the stories of the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob the one who set them free from slavery in the land of Egypt who gave them a covenant on Mount Sinai some of them may have remembered that and they have looked to the religious institutions of the day such as they were which were shrines and temples and places to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and look there and saw nothing but corruption and abuse, abuse of power, abuse of, of position, um, abuse of the strong over the weak, uh, and taking advantage of people's faithfulness in, in all kinds of ways. I don't know, that sound familiar to anyone? <laughs> Of our institutions, and into this, um, in the midst of this, is um, the woman Hannah, who finds herself in a very bad way. She is barren, she is bereft. The one thing that other women can have are children, and she's not able to have children. And as a result of this, she's ridiculed by her sisters and her neighbors, and um, made a laughing stock of and so there's there's hannah humiliated poor barren and bereft and somehow i think hannah symbolizes for um for the purposes of the scriptures hannah symbolizes the reality without denial or illusion of of this people of god they have become a laughing stock they are humiliated. they are not fertile. They are not able to bring forth life and energy and prosperity on their own. They have fallen into disarray and there's nothing there. And Hannah, as the first book of Samuel tells us, takes her stock in life to heart and places herself before her God the God of Israel, not the God of the Baals, but the God of Israel, and pours out her heart, praying from the reality of her situation. And she kind of makes a deal in the process. You know, I'm gonna rely on you. I've got nothing. But if you come and you rescue me in my emptiness, in my lowliness, I will offer you everything right now. I'm giving you everything I have, which is absolutely nothing. Whatever you give me in return, I will return to you. And so she goes and visits the shrine where people get abused and fleeced and stolen from and all sorts of things. But she goes there with her faith. And is praying there, and Eli the priest thinks she's drunk, but she's not. And lo and behold, she conceives and bears the son Samuel, and she fulfills her promise by taking her son and placing him in the service of God, which had to be a tremendous risk, because she's putting him in the temple, or the shrine of Eli, which we'll read as the chapters go on in the book of Samuel. It's not a good place to be raising a child. <laughs> but Eli is under the protection of, of, of Yahweh and grows, you know, he has the famous speak, Lord, your servant is listening and receives the word of God. And is this bridge between this Israel that is lost and disunified and barren and bereft and, and depressed. And through the prophet Samuel, the, tur- the page gets turned, the corner gets turned. And while it's going to be quite a struggle and it's not a pretty story all the time, Samuel brings forth uh, a unified nation under the kingship of Saul and then David. And somehow or another, with this strength, with this unity, with a renewed sense of the identity of this people as God's people, the nation comes together and becomes a real nation, sort of a real nation. There's always a little puny thing, but sort of a real nation. But that happened not as the result of any political scheming. That happened as the result of a woman who was herself, the image and likeness of her nation, of her people, with nothing. Offering everything she has to the God who she remembers hearing about, who rescues the poor and the oppressed, and offers everything in return for whatever God is going to give her. And as a result of that, the prophet Samuel emerges. And then the, the, two, the two things, the two of the three crowns of, of Israel, the prophets and, and the kings, arise. And between the two of them, the temple gets built, and the third crown of the priesthood arises. Israel is designed to have to work well, not when one or the other of them is in charge, but when all three of them are active and alive. Nobody with absolute power. When one of them has more power than the others, the nation crumbles. And, and, and we see that that playing out all oh. along. Well, then we have a whole other series with the stories of of Saul and David and Solomon. Um, We get introduced to a whole host of women in all kinds of different situations. Um, And among them, David has uh, lots of wives, he has four or five wives and concubines along with that. Um, David wants to build a temple for God and God says, no, you're not going to build the temple. you, you've, you've bloodied your hands too much in war. You're not going to build the temple. Um, and I think I, I see the connection somewhere between David's uh, rejection of his idea that he's going to be the one who builds God's house um, into a little bit of a pity party. And so David, for the first time, doesn't go forth with his armies. They go off on their military campaigns. He stays home. And idle at home, he notices this beautiful woman on the next rooftop um, and takes her. The fact that she belongs to someone else, it seemed to bother him. Um, and then that whole tragic story of uh, Bathsheba and the, the murder of her husband Uriah. Uh, and from that to complete disintegration of David's house. That takes another 40-some years to be completed. But he's on a downhill spiral from there. Yet the covenant promise has been made. And it's Bathsheba. And I don't know. Lots of people are writing a lot about Bathsheba and things like this. Um, and I, I can't figure it all out. I can't figure her out necessarily. Don't really know. But one thing that is clear about Bathsheba is that in all the great competition... To succeed David as king among his various sons and other factions and generals, Bathsheba is relentless in making sure that her son, Solomon, who probably has the least claim to be his father's successor, succeeds her father, his father as king. She somehow makes that happen and with all kinds of disarray and then solomon for a while does a great job and then it all starts to fall apart with with other things that that happen and you know the story like like solomon was supposedly famous for his wisdom and he was until he wasn't (laughs) but um you know the, the story of um the two women who uh had children and somehow the children were switched. One child died, and no one knows whose mother the live child is. And so they brought the child, Solomon to make the judgment. And his quote, wisdom is, cut the child in half. And the one who protests says, no, let the child live. The other woman can be the mother, and Solomon figures out, only the real mother would do that and so he makes this 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 choice somehow or another but there's this this choice point of women having to make those kinds of choices that show up in there um you know after things start falling apart in the kingdom we have the the great prophets of elijah and Elisha showing up Uh, and they do these great these great confrontations with the powers of the day um But as prophets, and they were real prophets, they had no standing whatsoever, except their own inspiration of the word of God and their own willingness to live only by that word. They are very much marginalized. They have no protection. They have no security. They have nothing to keep anyone from just running them over with a chariot um, and putting spears through them at any point. The two figures that are their champions that allow the prophetic message to stay alive in the nation of Israel are two widows or two women. The widow's Arapath for Elijah, who gives him food and drink when she and her son are starving during the time of famine, and in return, have enough to eat for a year, eat and drink for a year. But somehow that widow also as marginalized as you can get responds to the marginalized prophet with a senseless act of generosity. And she not only is rewarded with life for herself and her son, but that action allows the prophecy of Elijah to continue to keep the covenant relationship with God alive in Israel challenging the prophets of, of Baal and the worship of the fertility cults and the great contest on Mount Carmel, where he really did get carried away, having all the prophets slain. And it's very clear, that never made sense to me. Um, I, just, I just read something that made that clearer. So he has all the prophets of Baal slain, 450 prophets of Baal, Baal slain, after winning the contest on Mount Carmel, of which God is the real God. Um, And then he's really in trouble, (laughs) because the king and the queen are after him big time. Um, And his his journey takes him through depression and up to the mountain of God, Horeb, where he has the great theophany of meeting God in the tiny whispering sound. And while that's beautiful and it is very powerful, in that encounter, God fires him. So he's told, you know, yeah, yes, you've been zealous for the Lord your God. It's interesting. His speech is the same before and after the theophany. It doesn't change. And then God's response to the lack of change in his, in his understanding of himself with, yeah, you're done. Time to anoint Elisha as your successor. Um, and then Elisha emerges, and there's another, another woman, a wealthy about to be widow and, a, and uh, who's childless who ends up having a son after caring for Alicia and feeding him and taking care of him to so sustaining him so again the prophetic word of God is sustained by the, the generosity and the faithfulness of, of of women and then there are the 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 two which we think really are fictional stories of Esther and Judith um, a little different, uh, but this is, where, this is where the power of, of sexuality really emerges in the Bible. And I'm not sure anyone wants to touch it with a 10-foot pole, but there it is in, these, in, these, in the stories of these two women. Esther's, again, a, a fictional story during the, set during the exile in Babylon, where they've been taken away from their homes and in a foreign country where they're really not welcomed and there's plots against them uh, but Esther being a beautiful beautiful girl is taken into the, the harem of the king which is a fascinating in- political institution meant to ensure somehow uh Allegiance dominate you know control and domination and so her sexuality is being used by the, the Emperor to secure the allegiance of somebody somewhere along the way. How aware she is of that? I don't know. Probably they were pretty aware of that, but she's young and she's beautiful. And she becomes aware through her uncle of a dangerous plot to eliminate her people. And she gets put on the line. It's like you and you alone and your relationship with the emperor which is purely based on nothing other than your sexual power and your physical beauty over him. On that and that alone, the survival of our people depends. But she's careful not not to just rely on the power of her own sexuality. And we see in Esther, <clears throat> a young Jewish girl, who realizes that she needs help. And the story kind of suggests that she has never prayed before whatever her upbringing had been, she's in a position, maybe she's prayed with her family, but she's never been in the position of having to pray alone. And there she is in this incredible tense thing, because she doesn't have a lot to deal with. Yes, she's beautiful, but she's in a harem of a thousand beautiful girls. She's as replaceable as the day is long. She has enormous amount of pressure put on her by her people. And she is the only one who could help them and and, and spare them. And so she knows she can't do this alone and she prays for God's help. And things fall into place where things go her way, but with only a great act of courage on her part to invite herself to dinner and to get the notice of the king and to get the king's ear and to put in the king's ear the story of what his, his agent is doing to destroy her people. And the king is horrified because they keep things from the king. They don't tell the king. Um, they're doing all this behind his back. In his name, but behind his back. And perhaps influenced by the power of her beauty and her sexuality, she ha- he has, is inclined to listen to her. And the plot is discovered and uncovered. Her people are saved and the perpetrators are punished and the Jewish people continue to celebrate this today in the Feast of Purim, um, which is a curious, it's an interesting feast. It's when kind of, they, they have a great time on this feast. It's real celebration. Um, so that's the story of Esther. Judith is probably a composite story written maybe a hundred years before Christ um, and seems to be written as a story to communicate um, on one level, this is what the ideal of a Jewish woman can be. And on the other hand, it is meant to communicate, this is how God saves us. And God saves us by the power of the weak rather than the strong. So make a long story short, the the story is set with again the the emperor of babylon um mad that all his vassal nations didn't come to his aid in a a war against egypt and so he's going out hell-bent on punishing them and he sends his general Holofernes to march through all these territories and subject all the people he's sieging cities starving people out with sieges and all the sort of things approaching jerusalem and there's a outpost just outside the approach to jerusalem where the Israelites are going to try to oppose him, but they're being starved out. Their, their water supply is, is uh, stopped up. They have no water. Um, and emerging from this is this widow who herself was not involved in anything. She lived the life of a widow uh, mourning every day of the week except for the Sabbath and on the festivals. And so she comes and joins this, this group of people. And she's told to pray your job is to pray what we need is rain pray for rain so she does that for a few days and then she goes and says yeah i got a better idea this general has no has no chance against me and me alone i'll handle the general and so she 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 actually disguises herself that disguises herself she dresses up to the hilt makes herself as appealing and as beautiful and she was beautiful already but she just and puts on you know a seductive portrayal and basically presents herself like i'm on your side now i will help you um let me help you and i will lead you into the city of jerusalem and so she plays this game for a few nights and she's at dinner with them and all that kind of stuff. And, and the general Holofernes the furnace is getting more and more enticed and he can't take it anymore. And he's planning that this is the night where he's going to, um, uh, celebrate his triumph over Judith by having sex with her. Uh, and he gets himself filthy drunk and she's able in the course of that to, play her game all completely and it's not a game this is a very serious moment and cuts off his head and spikes through heads swords cutting off heads um and she keeps her promise to him i will lead you into the city of jerusalem which she does except it's just his head the rest of them gets left behind and so she's held up as this um this is what a a faith-filled uh inspired Devout woman willing to allow all of the gifts and energy that God has given her can do for her people so she's held up as that as that paragon of, of of virtue but it is a is a dangerous story in some ways um, and it really does require a willingness to um encounter appreciate uh value celebrate and integrate this enormous power called sexuality into uh, a life of, of, of community and faith and devotion. Um, and somehow Judah seems to have captured that rather than um, for herself. She's doing this for her, for her nation. And the last example of the women of history is the in the book of Maccabees and um, you know They have been invaded by the Greeks, and the Greeks are persecuting them terribly, trying to eradicate the Jewish culture and customs and religion in order to make everybody the same. Have one great secular culture, celebrating Greek values and learning and that sort of thing. And um, this mother of seven sons uh, inspires her sons to not give in. Do not surrender the values of remember who you are. Don't forget who you are. And watches one after the other for sons um, killed for refusing to engage in the in the desecrating practices that that they were being asked to do to save their lives and she gives inspiring speeches to each one of them even the last one and then she herself is killed um, for refusing to surrender who she is for to the sake of of a secular culture that's um, going to desacralize the world and violate the covenant that she knows is her identity and her people and rather would die than lose that covenant. Um, so those are the, the women of, of, of the historical books and, and history of, of, of Israel and they're always kind of around as you've got kings marching into battles and rebellions and overthrowing kingdoms and all kinds of, of, of stuff going on. Um, these stories of the women keep showing up, and they will not go away. Um, and they're stories of of devotion and faithfulness, um, a willingness to offer everything they have, whatever it is, in the service of the covenant. Um, and they do get a little bit celebrated, but they're also kind of hidden in there. I'm just going to end with this this the song that Hannah prayed, the psalm that Hannah prayed after. Um, She gives birth to her son, Samuel. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted by my God. I have swallowed up my enemies. I rejoice in your victory. There is no holy one like the Lord. There is no rock like our God. Speak boastfully no longer. Do not let arrogance issue from your mouths. For an all-knowing God is the Lord, a God who weighs actions. The bows of the mighty are broken while the tottering gird on strength. The well-fed hire themselves out for bread while the hungry no longer have to toil. The barren wife bears seven sons while the mother, mother of many languishes. The Lord puts to death and gives life, cast down to Sheol and brings up again. The Lord makes poor and makes rich, humbles and also exalts. He raises the needy from the dust, from the ash heap lifts up the poor to seat them with nobles and make a glorious throne their heritage the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he has set the world upon them. He guards the footsteps of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall perish in the darkness. For not by strength does one prevail. The Lord's foes shall be shattered. The most high in heaven thunders. The Lord judges the ends of the earth. May he give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Sound a little familiar to um, prayers that Elizabeth and Mary pray, which we'll talk about tomorrow. Okay, so um, Mass at eleven fifteen, and uh, this afternoon we're going to look a little bit about the prophetic literature and the wisdom literature, and uh, and really um, images of God that get, that need to be brought forth and celebrated more, the feminine images of God that that those sources of literature offer us. All right, very good.